All right. Well, good morning, everybody. You glad to be in the house today? All right, man, me too, me too. And hey, if you're watching online, we love you. We look forward to seeing you soon, hugging your neck and worshiping with you right here. Uh, so we're starting a new series called Cancel Culture. In fact, uh, we, we showed that video last week and a friend of mine I took to lunch and he said, man, when I saw that video, I leaned over to my wife and said, oh man, here it comes. I don't know what that means. Here it comes. Here what comes. I don't know. But he goes, oh man, it's coming. Whatever it is, it's coming. In fact, I've had several people this week go, Craig, you know, I kind of saw that thing on social media and uh, man, what, 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 where are you going with this, man? What, what are you doing? What's your angle? Where, where, where are you headed with this issue? Because it is an issue, right? I mean, we hear about it all the time. So, so I would just want to be forthcoming right at the very beginning and tell you where I'm going. All right. See, Jesus often would take current issues and then he would address them by laying it right up against truth, right? He did that often. In fact, he had a formula for that. He would say, you have heard it said, but I say. And so what, what I want to do over the next four weeks is not spend the next four weeks talking about cancel culture, cancel culture every single week. What I want to talk about is how when you lay what we know as cancer culture today uh, up against Jesus, up against the gospel, that Jesus is better. That the gospel is better. That the gospel is more glorious. The gospel is more redemptive. The gospel is more freeing. The gospel is, is, is more beautiful than anything else that we can imagine. That Jesus is better. That's what I want you to take away from today and every single week as we walk through this series. All right? So why don't you get your Bibles out? Let's do what we do. We always get into God's Word. Get your Bible out. Open up to John chapter 8. That's where we're going to be uh, for this morning, John chapter 8. Now, if we're going to uh, address cancel culture, it might be good for me to go ahead and start off with maybe a definition of what cancel culture is. For some of you, very familiar, you know how this works, you know all about it. Uh, for those of you, you may go, okay, I've heard that term, not really sure what that means. So let me just go ahead and kind of get us all on the same level uh, and give you a, a definition. So I'm going to put it up on the screen here. Uh, cancel culture refers to the widespread practice of withdrawing support for or canceling public figures uh, and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture takes place primarily on social media in the form of group shaming. All right, so that's a, that's a kind of a compilation of different definitions I've been gathering uh, throughout the week. Now, let me basically illustrate how this thing works, okay? So you have a, a public figure, maybe it's a, a politician or a CEO or an actor, actress, maybe a sports figure, and they post something, right? They say something or they post something, and someone sees that and they're offended by that. They go, I don't like that, I'm offended by that. They will usually respond in some way online. I don't like that. I'm offended by that. They may label that person a certain name or something like that. And, and then if other people jump on, they go, yeah, yeah, we're, we're offended by that too. And then more people jump on, yeah, we're offended by that too. And if, if the offended parties grow from 100 to 1,000 to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands, well, then that puts pressure on the organizations that support that public figure 
now that public fear is radioactive, and so they're trying to distance themselves from this, this CEO or this ball player or this actor or whatever the case may be, to distance themselves, and, and ultimately, they, they have pressure on them to cancel them. So cancel would simply mean that they are fired, they lose their job, or they uh, are kicked out of the university that they are associated with or they attend, or maybe their, their products that they produce are no longer available at certain stores, or they lose access to certain media platforms, uh, or they, they lose access to certain publishers, that kind of thing. They, they are silenced as much as possible. That's what we call cancel. That is my best definition of what the cancel culture is, how it operates uh, today. Now, this happens all the time. This happens with, with politicians and preachers. It happens with CEOs and comedians. It happens with sports writers and sports figures and, and scholars. It happens at all different kinds of people, left and right, politically. Everyone is free game for the cancel culture. Let me give you just an illustration uh, of a case where this has happened. Uh, Neil Golightly was the communications chief for Boeing Enterprises. Neil came under pressure to resign based on some statements that he made about women in combat that was published in a U.S. Navy publication. Now, the statements that he made, here's a trick, were, were said and published in 1987, 35 years ago, when Golightly was a 29-year-old pilot. And even though he said now, you know, of course, he's grown a lot, he's matured a lot, times have changed a lot, and he no longer holds that view, it doesn't really matter. He said that, it was published, it was credit to him, and so he has to go, and so he must be canceled. And I think this is part of the scary thing about cancel culture is that it goes back in the past to dredge up either things that you've done or things that you've said, and it doesn't really matter the context in which these things were said or what what was the prevailing thought in 1987 or how he's changed since then or maybe he even admitted that was a bad move. That was a, did anybody make a bad move in, when they were 29 years old, right? Anybody? Uh, yeah, that would probably be all of us, right? Uh, you're just glad they weren't recording stuff when you were back in your 20s, right? And, and, and so, yeah, it doesn't really matter. He's got to be canceled because, uh, because he said this thing that we don't agree with that doesn't come in line with uh, the prevailing view. That is how cancel culture works. And I could give you just example after example after example. Here's what I want you to know today. Cancel culture is not anything new, all right? People have been trying to cancel people since people existed on the planet. Uh, well, there's always been a cancel culture. Uh, what's new is just how it works online, the speed the, with which they can get so many people on board at one time, kind of that gang mentality, that mob mentality that can be stirred up quickly online. That is new, but cancel culture is not new. In fact, Jesus dealt with his own cancel culture, and that's what I want you to see today. How did Jesus handle the can cancel culture? In fact, how, how is Jesus, the title of the message is Jesus versus cancel culture. If you could see them facing off, how, how did Jesus respond very differently than the cancel culture of his day? And that's what I want to show you today. John chapter 8 is where we're picking up uh, the story here. And let's look at it together. John chapter 8, beginning of verse 2. This is the word of God. 
At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Now stop right there uh, for just a minute. I want you to write down some things today as we kind of work our way through this message for you to kind of think about during the week. So here's the first thing I want you to write, write down. I'm contrasting Jesus and cancel culture. So here it is. Uh, cancel culture fixates on the sin. Jesus focuses on the sinner. Right? Write that down. Cancel culture fixates on the sin. Jesus focuses on the sinner. The cancel culture in Jesus' day were the religious leaders, right? These were the Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders. They were the ones in power. They were the ones that opposed anyone who would jeopardize or threaten that power base. And they certainly did not like Jesus. He called them out in their hypocrisy. And so they wanted him gone. And so they, they looked for a way to trap him. And so the way they, they decided to trap him in this particular case was to drag a woman out before him. So here's Jesus. He's teaching in the temple courts. It's a large area. I've been there multiple times. This large, massive area. There would have been tens of thousands of people on there at one time. And he's teaching. It's a public area. And here comes, working their way through the crowd, this small little group of, of men that are dragging this woman behind them, and they, they put her in front of Jesus, standing right in front of him, and, and they're going to accuse her of adultery. Uh, now, this, if this isn't public shaming, I don't know what is, right? This is a perfect example of a mob-type group shaming publicly this person with an intent to cancel, literally, her life. And uh, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the law of Moses says that this woman caught in adultery uh, has to be stoned to death. What do you say? Now, Jesus had a perspective that we don't have. When we read this story, we kind of take it at face value because we don't really know the culture, the Jewish culture. We don't know all the ins and outs of how cases like this would be handled. But let me just tell you that there was something wrong with this case from the very beginning. Uh, for example, they would take a case like this. If there was an adultery case, they would take that to the priest. They would take it to a rabbi like Jesus. There was protocol in place. There would be, they, they, the Torah requires two to three witnesses for anyone accused of any type of, of crime against the law of Moses. There would have to be the man. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, not only is a woman to be tried, but the man that committed adultery with her is also to be tried. This man is nowhere to be found. And then there's to be the husband that's supposed to bring the charge. Well, he's nowhere to be found either. So you have no witnesses. You have no other party. You have no husband aggrieved party. Uh, so, so really, this is a very flimsy case to, to begin with. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that. 
In fact, uh, if I could just go on and say this, that uh, most scholars believe that there hadn't been a person stoned or killed for adultery in Jesus' time for about a thousand years. That, that whole case on the book, so to speak, uh, because the guy was just as guilty as the lady, they were like, okay, so let's just not make that a capital offense. Let's make that a misdemeanor, not a felony. And so people really weren't stoned to death in that time in the life of Jesus for this particular offense. And yet here they are, here they come, they bring this woman out. It's a rush to judgment. She committed a sin. The law says this, the greatest penalty is this. You have to decide right now, stones in hand, we're ready to rush to judgment to cancel her. Mob, rush to judgment, piling on, immediate canceling. Does that sound familiar? That's how it works today. But you see, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't stone people. We don't cancel people in the streets anymore. We cancel them with tweets. We cancel them with posts. We cancel them with likes. We cancel them with shares and thumbs up and hearts. We, we pile on and we accuse a person in the comfort of our own homes and basements behind our laptops and our cell phones. But I want you to see, here's this one part, this rush to judgment, this cancel culture, this mob type group, quick to accuse, quick to point out her sin that they found and they discovered. And I want you to see the difference of how Jesus sees her. How does Jesus respond to her? Jesus doesn't pile on. Jesus doesn't immediately accuse. Uh, you know, I guess if they were going to say silence is violence, they'd be saying that to Jesus. Why aren't you accusing her too? Why aren't you piling on too? Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus does quite the opposite. He looks at her with compassion. You know, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah talked about what the Messiah would be like. He gave lots of prophecies about what the Messiah would be like so that we could recognize him when he comes. And in, in, Isaiah, in Isaiah 42 verse 2, he gives a description that I think is very poignant here. He said this, the Messiah when he comes, he will not shout or raise his voice in public. He won't be like that angry mob. He will not crush the weakest reed or even put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He said when the Messiah comes, he's not gonna take this bruised reed and just snap it. He's not gonna take this flickering candle and just extinguish it. When, when the Messiah comes, he will move toward the broken. He will move toward the bruised. He will move toward the, the hurting. He will, be, he will be over the top in compassion. Let me just make it really clear for you. Maybe you're not a Christian. You're kind of checking the tires uh, of Christianity. Maybe you're looking on. Maybe you've seen Christians as the ultimate cancel culture. They're always the ones ready to hate on and, and remove people. Listen, listen to what, what Jesus is like. Jesus moves toward those who are hurting. Jesus is burdened for the broken. Jesus gravitates to the shamed and the abused and the, and the mess-ups and the foul-ups. Jesus, Jesus doesn't push away those who make mistakes, but he moves toward them, to the sinner 
and the dirty and the shamed, Jesus moves toward them. Jesus moves toward us. Such a contrast. And yeah, he saw the sin, but he saw her as a person of value. Many years ago in our church, there were two women that had a past that they kept concealed for the most part. They, that past included uh, a lot of hurt, um, some substance abuse, some physical sexual abuse in their past that really drove them to dancing in nightclubs for a period of time. Not something they were proud of, something that they really didn't want people to know. But then they heard the gospel and they came to Christ and saw the freedom that, that Jesus would bring and the forgiveness that Jesus would bring to them. And, and they became new creatures in Jesus. And they found a new identity, a new forgiveness in Christ. And it was a beautiful thing. And, and God began to bless them and they began to grow in their faith and love for the Lord. And man, so active in raising families and, and God was just blessing them in so many ways. But at one point, God began to remind them, hey, you remember that dark place that you were at? There are still women there. And while I've redeemed you and I've forgiven you and I've restored you, what about them? And so their hearts began to break for we need to go do something for these women that are still trapped in this terrible dark place. But in order to do that, they would have to reveal their own story. And I remember those early conversations about, you know, how are people going to respond? How are people in church going to respond if they knew this about me? But yet they took a step of faith and they trusted the Lord and they came clean with their story of their past and how God had freed them and redeemed them. And instead of being canceled, instead of being criticized, they found a church family loving on them and celebrating God's grace in their life. Not only that, but rolling up their sleeves to jump on board to try to help rescue these women that are still in these very difficult, terrible situations. That ministry still goes on today. And, and women after woman after woman has been rescued because of their faithfulness. And when, whenever I read this story, I think about those two women because what they saw in Jesus was not condemnation. What they saw was not criticism. What they saw in Jesus was compassion. Compassion is in short supply these days. But those of us who have received it should be the quick to give it. So I, what I want you to see here is that that cancel culture, they fixate on the sin. You did this, you did that. It was way back there. Yeah, but you still did it. You still said that. You still posted that. And they're quick uh, to deal with the sin, fixate on that sin. But Jesus always goes toward the sinner. Jesus always moves toward the person, the individual made in the image of God that is worth redeeming and worth rescuing and worth restoring. Second thing I want you to jot down is this. Cancel culture is rooted in self-righteousness. It's rooted in self-righteousness. Jesus forces us to acknowledge the sin in all of us. 
right? So cancel culture is rooted in self right. I, I'm the judge. I'm the standard. I determine what's right and what's wrong. And, and I'm okay and you're not, right? But Jesus exposes our own sin. He, he shows us the sin in all of us. So look, look at back at verse 6. It says, uh, so here's the woman. She's brought before him. They're saying, Jesus, she deserves to die. What do you say? You got to make a decision right now. Tell us, tell us, tell us. And everybody is watching. And here she is. And what does he do? Well, he just gets down on his knees and starts writing. Just on the, on the dust of the ground, he starts writing. It's kind of an interesting thing to do, right? I mean, you, I, I think I'd be going, uh, uh, hold on a second. Can I get some time to think this through? He just starts writing on the ground. And they're like, what are you doing? I can imagine everybody stopping and looking over his shoulder, trying to see what he's writing. Listen, for Christians, uh, uh, Christians for generations have been wanting to know what did Jesus write, all right? What did he write? Well, what did he put on the ground? Uh, the fact of the matter is we don't know, all right? Sorry. Uh, truth of the matter is we don't. Tell the person next to you, we don't know. We, we don't know what he wrote. However, there are some thoughts that people have put out there of what Jesus might have written. So let me give a couple of them to you. Uh, some people think that maybe Jesus was writing with his finger their names, the names of the accusers with their sin next to it. That could have been true. That Jesus writing their sin next to their name. Uh, others think that maybe Jesus was writing Jeremiah uh, 17, uh, verse 13, which says this, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. And, and maybe what he was doing is writing that verse in, in condemnation against them, saying, you're the ones that have turned away from God. You're the ones that have forgotten mercy. You're the ones that have forgotten compassion, and I'm writing you in the dust. You're the ones that will be condemned. Maybe so. But I, there's another idea that's come to me recently that I want to put out there, all right? You've probably heard those two before. Let me float out a third one. You see, as I said before, when cases like this would come, they, they had a procedure. There were legal procedures. You would go to a priest. There would be a trial. There would be witnesses. There would be uh, ma both man and woman involved. There would be, uh, uh, there would be deliberations. There would be uh, judgments, all right, and so on. All, the, all this was happening, and as I said before, none of that was happening in this case, right? This was totally off the books. This was not being done as it should be done. But it's interesting, if it ever got to a point of execution where that person had to be stoned for their sin, it was always the witnesses who threw the first stone. The reason why the witnesses threw the first stone, because if they were not telling the truth, then they were then guilty of murder and false witness. And so they, they could be held accountable. They could be killed for murder and for false witness. Both of those were capital offenses as well. So some think that maybe Jesus was writing, thou shalt not commit adultery. And what's interesting is when you look at Exodus chapter 20, the 10 commandments, it says thou shalt not commit adultery. And right above it says thou shalt not murder. And right below it says thou shalt not commit false witness. Maybe he was writing that on the ground. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit false witness. And then he stepped back and he said, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. In other words, he was basically saying, I'm going to call your bluff. But if you throw your stone, you seal your own fate. Maybe that's what made him walk away. We don't know. But here's what I, I do know. 
I do know that when the cancel culture was coming against her, it was rooted in self-righteousness. They thought they could set the standard that she was wrong, but they were completely ignorant of their own sin. They were quick to look at hers, but not look at theirs. And what Jesus was doing, whatever he wrote on the ground, he was holding up the mirror to them and saying, look at your own sinfulness. We're living in a culture that minimizes sin. Well, I take it back. Uh, minimizes most sin and only highlights a few of them that mostly pertain to you and not to me, right? I like to set the standard, right? What you said was wrong, and yet my position uh, is okay. And so there's a sense of self-righteousness. I'm kind of better than you. I'm the one that sets the standard, and you're, you're not meeting the standard. But here's the issue. In Scripture, Jesus is the standard, we don't get to make the standard. Jesus is a standard. And if Jesus, perfect Jesus is a standard, then guess what? All of us fall short of it. The, the inconvenient truth of the matter is we have all sinned against God. Every single one of us. There, this is repeated over and over and over in the scripture. I love what Psalm 130 verse 3 says. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand I mean, God, if you give a record, there's nobody that's going to stand before you, right? Nobody. Who could stand? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Now, I heard a, a preacher say one time, all means all, and that's all all means, all right? You can write that down. Uh, everyone has sinned. Uh, how many have sinned against the glory of God? Lift up your voice. How many? All of us have all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone uh, to his own way. Romans 3.16, for there is no one righteous. No, not one. So before we seek to cancel somebody else, we have to look at our own face in the mirror and see our own sin that deserves to be canceled before God. Every single one of us are sinners. It's a universal problem. Listen, we're all, everyone is infected with sin, both the religious and the irreligious. Both the people that go to church and the people that don't go to church. Both the people that vote like you do and not, don't vote like you do. Both the people that are moral on the outside and who are immoral on the outside. Both have sinned against God and are judged before him. See, there were two people there that were guilty. It wasn't just the woman. It was also the mob. They were both in desperate need of forgiveness. Folks, we, we, need, to, we need to always remember that. That our sin is bigger than, it is, than you think. Our sin is grievous. We need to feel the weight of it. We need to understand the weight of it before we quickly accuse others and so Jesus understood that while they were, they were quick to have this self-righteous attitude that they, they can judge another, that Jesus was pointing out that the line of sin runs through every heart and every person. That we're all condemned before God for our own sin. And then this last, last thing I want you to write down is cancel culture condemns, but Jesus forgives. Cancel culture condemns, but Jesus forgives. Look at verse, look at verse nine. It says, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, he said. Go and from now on, do not sin anymore. You know, I just love how Jesus treats this sinful woman. I just love it. The, the tenderness of it, the, the mercy in it, the compassion in his voice. When he looked at her, she, did, she didn't see eyes of criticism like, you're such a disappointment. She didn't see his eyes going, well, you're such a screw up. Why can't you get your life together? She didn't see the look of, uh, gosh, I have to do this again. What she saw was someone who loved her. In fact, when he said woman, what he was doing was restoring her dignity. That which the mob was trying to strip from her, he was restoring her dignity. He said, woman, who's accusing you? Who's condemning you? She said, no one, Lord. For the first time, her eyes were getting to see that he was, he was her Lord, her master. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go. Don't sin anymore. And off she goes. And you might say, well, hold on just a minute. Maybe there's a hand up in the back of the room. Hold on just a minute. <laughs> I mean, she actually was guilty, right? I mean, how can he just let her walk? I mean, there's, there's a law that was broken. How can he let her walk? And that is the real problem, right? How can God both be righteous and just and yet merciful at the same time? How can he do it? How can God hold up the standard of what is right and wrong and, and punish what's wrong and at the same time be gracious and kind and forgiving? How can he do both? And, and right here we see it because, you see, Jesus didn't dismiss her sin. He just transferred her sin. When she came into that circle, that hostile circle, her adultery, her sin, her, 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 her sexual addiction, or whatever the thing was, it was on her back. But when she left, it was on Jesus' back. When she came into that circle, her sin was to her account. But when she left, it was on Jesus' account. When she came in, it was on her books, and now it's on his books. And all of a sudden, there was this transfer that Jesus in some way took on her sin on himself. And she was able to go free because Jesus would pay for it himself. Jesus would face her execution. He would stand in her place. And that happened on the cross. Do you not understand when we talk about hallelujah, praise you Lord, the beauty of the cross, thank you for the cross. What happened on that cross? On that cross, all of your sin, all the things that you've done wrong that deserve judgment against God was placed on the back of innocent Jesus and he canceled your sin at the cross. Those are the exact words that Paul uses in Colossians 2. He said, he forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge, our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You understand that? Jesus doesn't cancel you. He cancels your sin. Jesus doesn't blot out you. He blots out your sin. Jesus doesn't remove you. He removes your sin when you come to him and cry out for forgiveness. It's over and over and over. I love this. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting men's sins against them. I can't think of a greater contrast to, can, uh, to cancel culture, which laws look at your past and find your sin and, and hold it against you. And Jesus says, I don't hold that against you anymore. 
I've forgiven it. I've freed you. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, He has removed his sin, our sin, as far as the east is from the west. Praise God for that. So where do you see yourself in this story? Some of you may say, well, you know, I see, my, I, I see myself as a woman. I, I know my sin. I, I mean, I know what I did. I know where I've been. I know the things that I've said. There are things that I, I don't want anybody to know. Things that have happened to me and things I've done to other people. I, I don't want people to know it because I, I know my sin. I don't ever think that I could ever be in a place where God could forgive me for what I've done. Then if that's you today, you can be forgiven. You can walk out of this place free, clean, restored, right with God. Some of you, if you look at this story, you might have to be honest and say, you know what, I sometimes see myself in that mob. I'm quick to condemn people. I'm quick to hold things against them. I'm quick to be angry. I'm quick to hold a grudge. I'm quick to hold things against people that have been done years ago. I'll never forget. Then you know what? You can be forgiven too. There's grace for you too. You see, both, both parties, we all need grace, don't we? We all need God's forgiveness. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. I can't help but think that maybe after that woman left, this is not in the Bible, so this is just my own imagination, really. But I just kind of picture the crowd dispersing and Jesus is standing there in the temple. All this has just happened. And I picture him lifting up his eyes to heaven and saying, well, Father, I'm going to pay for her sin. That's what I'm going to do at the cross. But Father, I'm dreaming of a day when there'll be a group of people that all their sin has been canceled. And when they come together, that there will be a place of grace and a place of mercy and a place of forgiveness. See, I think Jesus dreamed of a church that day filled with people who've had their sin canceled that would then be a light of the gospel to a very dark, hostile world. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. Would you bow your heads with me for just a minute? You may be here today and you need Christ. You need your sin forgiven. You want to know that, hey, I can walk out of this place free, forgiven. Jesus has paid it all. He died on the cross for you in your place because he loves you. He's ready, eager, even now leaning toward you to forgive you if you would simply call on him to confess your sin and ask him to forgive you. And so if that's what you want to do, then just right now, everybody's head is bowed. I'm not going to call you out in any way, but just lift up your hand. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I need, I need forgiveness. All right, just lift up your hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Just lift up your hand. Pray for me, Pastor. I need, to be, I need to know for sure that my sin is forgiven. Lift it up. Maybe you're watching online. Just go ahead and lift up your hand. God sees it. It's that act of faith. Saying, Lord, I need help that he sees. All right, thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Lift up your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I just need forgiveness. I need to be clean on the inside. All right, thank you. 
All right, you put your hand down now. Just pray this simple prayer with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your kindness toward us. Lord, I just commit, confess my sin to you. I confess that I don't deserve mercy, that I've sinned against you. But I believe that you died on a cross for me. I believe you rose again, again from the dead. And I believe only you can forgive me. So I'm asking you now, please forgive me. Please change me. Wipe me clean. Today I choose to follow you. Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness toward us. Lord, thank you for this story that stands in stark contrast to the cancel culture of our day, that you canceled our sin, not us. That you made a way for us to be forgiven. That your heart of compassion beats toward us, it leans toward us more than we can possibly realize. Lord, I pray that we would walk out of this place as people who have had their sin canceled and that, Lord, the world out there is hostile and quick to condemn would see the difference in us, God. The stark contrast to the gospel and they would be drawn to you. Lord, we love you. Use us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.